The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. The show today presented by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code KevinDC for a chance at a first deposit bonus of up to $1,000. You've got to use my promo code KevinDC to claim that bonus. They've got everything you want, golf fans, to bet the U.S. Open at MyBookie. Whether you're a diehard or a casual fan, simply put, there's never been a better time to start exploring the world of online sports betting with MyBookie. In addition to everything you'd want uh, related to the U.S. Open, which starts tomorrow, they've got all of their NFL 2020. 23 prop bets up uh, the season totals uh, odds on winning divisions championship games Super Bowls rookie of the year odds first coach to be fired odds all of that available at my bookie where you can bet anything anytime anywhere with my bookie uh, two guests on the show today Ben Standig is coming up Uh, And then after that, you're going to hear part of my conversation with Denny McCarthy from last week on radio after Denny nearly won the Memorial. Uh, He's in the U.S. Open. uh, And in that conversation that I had with him last week, he kind of previewed LACC, LA Country Club, and the kind of U.S. Open it will be. But we start with some breaking news Literally, as I am recording this podcast, it's a good thing I checked uh, Twitter. Uh, Adrian Wojnarowski from ESPN, their senior NBA insider. As rival teams begin reaching out to the Washington Wizards to explore the possibility of trading for three-time All-Star guard Bradley Beal, team president Michael Winger and Beal's agent Mark Bartlestein of Priority Sports are staying in close contact contact to discuss scenarios presented to the franchise, sources tell ESPN on Wednesday. The Wizards are working with Bradley Beal right now on trade scenarios. Remember, he just finished the first year of his five-year $251 million deal Uh, And I suggested last Friday um, or Thursday or whenever Ted Leonsis held that press conference with Michael Winger and with Will Dawkins. Uh, First of all, I found both Dawkins and Winger to be impressive, especially Dawkins. But no matter how much they try to sell this new front office, the first tell will be whether or not they recognize that trading Bradley Beal uh, is important. And if they don't recognize that and they think they can actually contend with Bradley Beal on a five-year, $251 million deal as their highest-paid player and the player perceived to be their best player, well, that would tell me that this isn't going to be any better than the past. So we've got a draft a week from tomorrow. Uh, there are you know, player option decisions with Kyle Kuzma and Chris Stapps Porzingis. Uh, coming soon, but it certainly would appear, based on Woj's reporting, that the Wizards and Beal are talking about trade scenarios. 
interesting because a piece of news that came out yesterday was that the Miami Heat actually tried to trade for Kyrie Irving at the trade deadline. I think that would have been disastrous, personally. But um, they've got Tyler Hero and three first-round, future first-round picks to dangle in front of somebody like Washington. Now, would that be enough to get somebody like Damian Lillard, who is in a class above Bradley Beal? He is. Um, maybe not, but maybe it would be enough to get Bradley Beal to Miami. Um, I I like this news, and I'm a fan to of a certain to a certain degree of Bradley Beal. I don't have anything against Bradley Beal, but I want this team to eventually contend for a championship, or at least contend for deep into the postseason. With Bradley Beal as your best player, the best you're going to be competing for, really, unless you get some real good young players and draft exceptionally well, you're going to be looking at, you know, play-in territory, 7-10 to 10 range every year. That's not what they want. That's not what he hired these three people to do. So there you go. Um, some news related, or you know, within a week of hiring all these guys, I guess two weeks since they hired Winger, um, the Wizards potentially uh, looking at trading Bradley Beal. Uh, one other quick thing before we get to Ben Standing. And by the way, my conversation with Ben will include st- some stuff on the Wizards. Uh, but this was recorded with Ben earlier this morning before this Wizards news broke. But you'll hear us talk about uh, Beal um, without knowing that news. Um, But the other piece of news that came out from Ben Fisher at Sports Business Journal is that uh, the NFL has put out a memo to its owners um, that they should reserve July 20th and August 8th uh, as dates for a potential vote on a very important league matter. So, you know, what we're talking about here is, of course, you know, the ratification, if you will, of the Josh Harris group as the new owners in Washington. I still will say what I've said multiple times. I don't know why they have to be together to do this. I think it's ridiculous that we've got, you know, a month, you know, and a week um, or, or potentially a month and a half uh, before these guys can vote on it. I don't know why in 2022. In 2023, excuse me, they can't do this uh, via Zoom. Um, But NFL owners, according to Ben Fisher from Sports Business Journal, have been told to reserve July 20th and August 8th as dates for a possible special league meeting. So all the while, you know, a month and a half is going by potentially without stadium stuff, without you know, getting excited uh, about being the owners of the new team and allowing guys like Ron Rivera uh, to make decisions on contract extensions for Cameron Curl and, you know, any other football business that needs to be conducted. Uh, we'll have to wait just a little bit longer. All right. Uh, let me just remind everybody, please rate us and review us on Apple and Spotify if you get a chance. That's really helpful. And follow us as well on Apple and Spotify. That's helpful Uh, as well. All right, let's get to Ben Standing next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ben Standing jumping on the podcast with us today. Of course, Ben covers 
the Washington Commanders for The Athletic. You should subscribe to The Athletic. I'm a subscriber. It's very inexpensive and totally worth it. Uh, you can follow Ben on Twitter, at Ben Standig, and you can listen to his podcast, Standig Room Only. Uh, so uh, I'm having Ben on today to talk about a number of things because Ben and I have a lot of the same interests. Like, Ben actually really likes tennis. I think he likes tennis the way I do, which is he likes talking about tennis in the 80s and 90s more so than <laughs> watching tennis today. Um, but we can talk a little uh, tennis and a little bit about where Novak Djokovic uh, ranks all time. Many people now saying he's the greatest of all time. Uh, we can talk some Wizards. The draft is a week from tomorrow night. Uh, but we will start with, of course, uh, the football team. Uh, and yesterday was the last scheduled day uh, initially of OTAs. They had the three days. Two of them were docked. Uh, Ron Rivera made uh, it very clear to you guys, as in the beat, you know, reporters covering the team on Thursday after minicamp. Hey, don't forget, we are practicing. We are taking advantage of this last OTA day on Tuesday, June 13th, which they then on Monday uh, canceled uh, and had some sort of light workout or something yesterday. So I want to go back to last week when he was so adamant and telling everybody about this. You and I talked about this on the radio, but um, for those that just listened to the podcast, you really felt like this was an Eric Bieniemy decision last week, as was a lot of the scheduling with respect to you know OTA days and minicamp days. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird dynamic because... Typically, we've seen here the coaches cancel the final day of the off-season program as a bit of a reward, assuming that they feel pretty good about everybody doing their work, and typically they do, and and then they move on. So in that regard, it's not surprising that it was canceled, except that they already had two days of OTAs docked because of some excessive hitting last year the league did that so they're already down two days leaving this one day you know you they were asking the players to to finish a mini camp thursday and then stay through tuesday and you know any of us who've ever gone through like the, you know, the last days of school <laughs> you know you, 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 you know it can't it, it takes forever to get there so I, i'm sure for some guys again the ota is voluntary so you know players didn't have to be there that I imagine they, the, the coaches eventually saw the landscape and were like, all right, a bunch of guys are probably not going to come back, um, so let's do so, let's just, let's make this less official than than it would have been. And you know, I also so so yeah, so they did switch it in that regard. I, I I also wonder, you know, to whatever degree they're thinking, hey, we've kind of avoided the injury bug here. Obviously, it's a bummer with Armani Rogers. But you know he is the only one that we that we know of who have who's had any type of notable injury here that set them back. And if you think where they were a year ago at this time, with the amount of guys um, who were out, that maybe they were like, you know what, we, we we think we've gotten some good work in. We're asking guys to stay four more days. We know some a bunch of guys probably aren't. So let's just you know those who are here, we'll, we'll get some st- we'll get some stuff done. Looks like they were having some fun out there yesterday with a punt pass and kick competition among other things so you know a light day but some guys you know were there and stayed and i don't think it's a huge deal but yeah they they went from being yeah we're definitely doing this too okay we're gonna shift course here i mean you and i talked about this last week i i thought look i'm not going to make a big deal out of it but considering that last thursday i felt like okay they're going to have this you know scheduled day Eric Bieniemy um, is probably, you know, um, influencing this, taking advantage of every opportunity to install his new offense, work with his new players, have his players work with him because he's new. Um, and then I said to you, it's going to be interesting to see how many of the offensive players stick around and post for this thing. And ultimately, they probably canceled it because overall – there just wasn't going to be as much of a turnout, and they may not have wanted to, you know, deal with whatever the 
um, the response would have been to a light turnout if they had had a light turnout. Or let me say, instead of light turnout, if they had had a significant number of absences absences compared to just the three that they had for the first or the three to four, whatever it was, because I know there were others that, you know, had, um, you know, uh, a couple of, of, of misses, but basically less than five uh, absences for OTAs for the first six. Yeah, and, and by the way, like, the, what the, the, the primary difference, at least from my perspective, of them changing the format is what, if it was an OTA, then it's open to the media, it's open to the public. Uh, right. This way was open to nobody. Right. So, yeah, yeah so, so we're not there going, okay, well, this guy's not here, this guy's not here. Actually, half the starters are gone, or whatever it would be. Um, you know, you could if you follow some guys on Instagram, you could see so who who was some guys were were certainly elsewhere. Um, if you look at some of the videos that are out online from the team and uh, and elsewhere, you can see some of the guys that were there. So that, definitely a uh, you know not, not 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 a full house, but you know, like I said, I don't make it be a huge deal. But yes, it, it's uh, it, it, the storyline would be very different right now if we're all going. All right, well, they had this one low TA and X amount of players didn't show. Yeah. You know, so yeah, they avoided that as well. All right, let's talk uh, some football. Um, you've written this morning uh, part one of two parts of your big takeaways of the off season so far. You know, the next time we will see this team together is training camp, which uh, they announced earlier this week begins on July twenty seventh. So, give me a couple of your big takeaways uh, from. You know, you don't have to give your whole story here because I want people to subscribe to The Athletic and read it. But a couple of these are, are things that we've talked about on radio, but I, I, I'd like you to give your first one because I think this is an interesting um, development. Um, big takeaway number one was what? Yeah, it, it has to do with Antonio Gibson. Um, you know, for me, I go back to when he was coming into the league and, you know, when they drafted him in the third round uh, that year, it was sort of like, wait, uh, why, why are they drafting a running back? They've got Adrian Pearson. They've got Darius Geis. doesn't seem like a position that you need. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, well, this guy actually played receiver in college. And wait a minute, some people think he's a slot. Some people think he's a, he's a running back who could shift outside. He can return. Like, it was like, okay, this is a really interesting player. We don't quite know what he's going to be, but it's – clearly a guy that they can use in a lot of different ways. And to some degree, they did some of that. But I, I've, I've just always felt he he ended up being much more of a conventional running back than the way it was initially portrayed as how they were going to use him. Um, and, you know, that, then, you know, you know, his yards per carry has gone down uh, each year. He was obviously highly productive as a rookie, but his yards per carry has gone down each year. And, you know, it hasn't felt like he's been this big dynamic playmaker for a while. Um, or not, you know, not that he's not been effective, but or helpful, but just not as dynamic. And with Eric Bieniemy, I think there's a chance that we get back to some of those initial thoughts as to using him in in, in a varied ways. You know, one difference is this will be the first year he's playing where J.D. McKissick is not a factor, right? McKissick was around, and I know he got hurt, but when they started their planning, McKissick was always there as this pass catcher, uh, you know, change of pace kind of guy. Well, now Gibson is kind of in that role. You've got Brian Robinson, and now you have Chris Rodriguez, who are more of those between-the-tackles guys. Um, and, you know, then we we talked about, I think last week, about how the screen game has been a bigger element in practices so far, something that they rarely used with running backs last year. So I think when you put it all together, I think it's pretty interesting to see where Antonio Gibson can go. I don't know about usage yet. I mean, that's a, that we'll, we'll see more about that later. But in terms of role, I think this may be the more interesting of the ways to use him than they have in the in the previous season. Yeah, I'm excited for that. Um, I, I just think that, you know, in watching, you know, the Chiefs, in recent years, as we all have, because it's been impossible to ignore them. 
But the, to see, you know, the way guys like – well, a guy like Jarek McKinnon in particular in the last couple of years has been used. Um, obviously, Isaiah Pacheco was a real find for them last year, and they'll have McKinnon and Pacheco this year. But just watching the way they use their backs, and part of that's the quarterback too, you know, the quarterback going through it and creating off schedule. and But a lot of it is planned. And Gibson, to me, has uh, – I've – I just think he's one of the most gifted players on the team. And I wonder how much the fumbling problem early, uh, you know, in 2021 and 2022, um, or going back to 2020, excuse me, how much of that, you know, uh, had them thinking Brian Robinson Jr. had them thinking running back, which you were all over last year before the draft. But now you got a fresh set of eyes and – it sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but Eric Bieniemy likes what he sees in Gibson. Yeah, I mean, I think also, like, the the three running backs, you know, Brian Robinson didn't catch a ton of passes last year, but I, he's got the ability to, to make plays. And, and Chris Rodriguez, you look at his Kentucky stats, same thing, didn't not a lot of uh, plays uh, as a receiver, but I guess from what I've seen, he can he can do that. And I think, like, you know, the more versatile your your running backs can be, it's going to keep the defense a bit more off balance. And I think that's going to be interesting to to see here. And then, yeah, Gibson obviously is the is the most naturally versatile of the bunch. And yeah, I mean, you know, go back and watch his highlight tape from Memphis, and even some of the that first year uh, here, and you're like, wow, like this guy is, you know incredibly dynamic and explosive and we just haven't seen it as much now again some of that is is him and we, we talked about this a lot after his rookie year like there were some really good numbers but he left a lot on the on the table on the field in terms of like you know seeing running lanes and and, and you know sometimes it's like we say like well a player's got to improve and sometimes you just have to say hey why are we using him in ways that he's not as effective? And, and, and you know, because he's a big guy also, you know, he, he, I think it probably lets you think, well, we could just, like, you know, run him up, up the middle or, you know, between the tackles like we would some other players. And I just don't think that was his guy. Whereas, like, with Brian Robinson last year, you definitely see a guy who's much more decisive um, at the line of scrimmage. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm just intrigued to see what they do. And I, I would probably put – you know, Curtis Samuel in this mode as well. I mean, they did use him a lot out of the backfield last year in various ways, but I'm curious to see what the enemy will do with him when the time comes. And, uh, you know, Deami Brown is another one. I mean, the guy with, you know, like that crazy speed that they've never figured out how to use in his first two years. So I don't know exactly what will happen with him, but those are the guys that I think, you know, if this enemy system is what people hope it can be, uh, then I think those are three guys that can really be interesting in ways we haven't seen as much uh, in their careers here. Yeah, I mean, I, I still, and I've been stuck on this for a while now, I still think that Antonio Gibson uh, was pretty good between the tackles as a thumper. Uh, I, I don't think that he, um, you know, maybe there was some, uh, you know, Cooley pointed this out his rookie year, thought that his vision wasn't great and his patience wasn't great. I thought that improved dramatically. I remember Scott Turner telling me that last year um, when I had him on. He said he's a much more um, – he's his, his patience and his vision has improved dramatically. And then last year the fumbling uh, improved. But look, Brian Robinson Jr., I'm, I'm not taking anything away from him. I think he is their best in between the tackles – you know, uh, guy, but I, I, they, they rode Gibson to a four game winning streak in 2021 and back into playoff contention. I mean, that was, you know, a a really good defense during that stretch and a lot of really good Antonio Gibson, um, during that stretch. I'm glad that I remember Ron Rivera saying early on, we'll see, you know, what Eric thinks of Antonio, um, uh, I'm glad that uh, he's going to be – it sounds like he's going to be a big part of what they do. And remember, everybody, he is on the last year of his rookie deal. Um, so it's a big deal uh, for him. Um, so you you wrote about something else that I wanted to talk about briefly, uh, and that is that you know the DBs um, and how it will shake out. And even though during some of this – 
period, you know, of OTAs and minicamp, we saw Forbes in the slot. That's not where he's going to be. So in your best estimation, who's the slot corner when we get to September 10th? Yeah, I, I think, well, you know, I think what's interesting is they have two distinct paths that they can go depending on the matchup or what they want to do. You've got Benjamin St. Goose obviously started at that position last year a lot before they moved him outside when the William Jackson thing imploded. Um, and he gives you that, you know, really big, you know, 6'3 uh, option, especially if you're facing like, you know, tight ends or, or some, you know, big, big receivers. But, you know, they drafted Quan Martin. But even they were basically like, he's not really a safety. He's basically that spot. <laughs> like, like he, they basically drafted him to play this specific position. And, you know, again, it's early and, and we haven't seen a ton yet, but, you know, I think he's looked pretty good. He's been around the ball. You know, his versatility, you know, the versatility of these players in the secondary is so important. Uh, but, you know, you have to, you have to adjust, you know, within the play, depending on what the other team is doing. And, you know, he could play closer to the line of scrimmage. He could play, they think, deep safety. He played cornerback some at Illinois. So they really, this is a guy that they can use in a lot of different ways. And I think, like, it, it, we, we, you know, we just spent so much time in it early on about, you know, Forbes or St. Juice or Fuller there. And the reality is it's much more Quan Martin and or St. Juice. Uh, there, but you know, I think also wouldn't rule out. You know, there's still the, you know, you can play Cam Curl there. Um, you know, you can go with another cornerback if you wanted Danny Johnson or someone like that. But I think Quan Martin and or St. Juice is going to be one of the more interesting uh, battles for sure. Um, and I say battle, I mean, I just mean like, how do they want to deploy them? I think they can both play there, but like it's just how, how do the coaches want to use them? I think was, is going to be uh, an interesting uh, watch uh, throughout the summer. All right. Um, how do you think they think Sam Howell did? Um, I think they think he did pretty, pr- pretty good. I mean, you know, he's got natural talent, arm strength, you know, good mobility. Doesn't seem to be. Uh, overwhelmed by the situation, and I think all that played out in um, in these practices. You know, inexperience is only going to come, or experience, I should say, is only going to come with time. And uh, you know, they gave him all the first team reps as a way to you know try to help speed that process up. And uh, you know, I, I think they, I think they think he did pretty good. You know, that Dallas game was only one game, and it isn't to suggest he's going to the Hall of Fame based off of that, but it showed he can play. And I think, you know, a lot of times we watch some of these quarterbacks implode. I mean, you know, maybe they have the one game and, and uh, you know, then things fall apart after that. But, you know, do you see the guy look the part when he's out there? And if he does, then, you know, obviously that's, you know, that, that's almost of a tap to battle, but that's a good part of the battle that you got to you know, work on fine-tuning it all. And I think he did that, and I think he's continued to do that here. Um, you know, but you know, we'll see when I get back to training camp and, and, and start dialing things up. You know, do, he did throw a bunch of interceptions. Was that a function of experimentation and, you know, the defense knowing they're not running the ball and things like that? Or, you know, was that a concern? And, and we'll see if that continues going forward. But, you know, I think for the most part they feel – pretty good about where they are with with him and um you know that you know now everybody's just gotta see about taking it you know up a notch or two as they move forward yeah. uh you want to talk a little tennis you, whatever you want to do man you're uh, you know you're running the show here all right where does novak djokovic rank on the all-time greatest men's tennis player list the reason why this is so fascinating to me is look obviously we can all you know just like all these go debates we can you know well, this guy had a better this, this guy had a better that, you know, whatever it may be. But I remember, and I've got the tweets to, 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 to back this up, that when Federer, you know, he passes Pete Sampras for the most majors and, you know, keeps going and, and you know, gets to 20, and like, oh, he's the best ever, and people would cite the number often. And I was always like, okay, but if you're telling me the number is the thing, then what happens when the doll catches him? 
because and Nadal, you know, throughout their career, Nadal had a better head-to-head record. Right. I know, you know, a lot of that, of course, was things like the French Open, but Nadal beat him on you know, in, on big stages and other in other uh, surfaces. And oh well, you know, that's not a thing. Well, sure enough, Nadal catches and, be, and passes Federer. Now, you know that that argument seems to go away. And now you have Djokovic, who's passed them both. And what is so fascinating to me is. Like to use the NBA as an example, you know, Bill Russell, the great player, has the most rings, but he played primarily at a time where, you know, he was like just, you know, there just weren't a lot of, you know, athletes like him. I mean, you know, Will Chamberlain was in there for a little bit, but he just had better teams and, you know, he just won more uh, dominantly. Whereas, like in some areas, you know, you've got, you know, it's simultaneously, you know, Magic Bird. Uh, Michael Jordan, et cetera, Isaiah Thomas, and boy, it's, you really have to go up against you know, some of the best ever to win. Djokovic to get all these majors, uh, other than the, since Federer's retired in the last couple of years, he's had to win them all with those two guys there already ahead of him. I mean, they both had. I mean, Federer. If you go back and look, there was like a four-year period of his career where Sampras and Agassi had retired or while the birds were retiring, and Nadal had only just started to play, and Djokovic was a, was nothing. And that's when Federer racked up a huge amount of majors. And I'm not saying that's negative. I'm just saying that's what he did. So he won a lot at a point where there really wasn't another all-time great with him. Uh, Nadal and, Fed- and Djokovic always had to win when Federer was there. And for Djokovic to have done it with both of those guys were there, when you have Nadal completely dominating one surface, and Federer, you know, being great at the at Wimbledon and and you know pretty much everywhere, of course, I, it's just incredible that he's been able to do this. So if you're just a majors person, well, then I think he's got to be the best one when you put it all together. Now, if you want to, we point to you know best forehand, that biggest clutch performer. I don't know. Some of these things maybe get a little more difficult, but I think it's pretty hard to ignore right now the Djokovic. Would be the guy. Am I right? I think when he just won this, the French, he's just he's the first person to have won at least three times on all the surfaces. Yeah, he's the I, I first uh, one to win three on all four at all four majors. Yes. Yeah, but there's only so many players who even won one at all majors. Like a Gil Lefty, you'll need you don't need all yeah. your fingers to count. I yeah. think the number of players that have done that. So he's done it that many times again in a point when. Two of the other guys who were in the discussion of the best ever or playing is, you know, insane. Yeah, it's really I, – I hear what you're saying. Um, I, I always try to think about, like, you know, at their best, who was better. I, I still think right. Federer at his best was the best of the three and the greatest of all time. But – He's got a losing record against Nadal. He's got a losing record big time in Grand Slams against Nadal. He's got a losing record against Djokovic. Djokovic, um, by the way, uh, has a losing record against Nadal at Grand Slams too, and I think they're pretty much 500 overall. But then you look at Nadal and, and you're like, you look at his, uh, you know, his 22 and 14 of them have come in Paris. Um, does that, you know, does that factor into this? Uh, I think Federer and Djokovic actually as all surface players are actually are ahead of Nadal, but at the same time, Nadal head to head with these guys in grand slams has a winning record. So I don't, it's, it's a hard thing. I just think Federer and you brought, you brought up a, a really interesting, um, Federer did win a lot of those majors starting in 2004 as Agassi was winding down. I mean, he had Roddick there, but he owned Roddick. Nadal, to be fair, I mean, Federer won his first, I think, in 2004 um, and then racked up like literally 11 majors in like four years. Um, and Nadal had started to win the French at that point. You know, he was, you know, I I think Nadal's first French came in 2005. So that rivalry was beginning and Nadal was his, you know, his greatest rival during that era. But the early, you know, 11 out of his 20 came in the first four years, 
I think it was. Hold on. I'm adding them up right now. Um, Federer's first major, I'm sorry, came in Wimbledon 2003. So he got that three the next year, two the following year, three the next year, three the next year. So three, six, eight, 11, 12 majors over a five-year period, 12 of his 20. It's pretty amazing. Um, but I, for me, just watching Federer on any surface – to me, the the eye test tells me that Federer, in at his best, was better than Nadal and better than Djokovic. But it's hard to argue with Djokovic, who's been an absolute machine. And by the way, has missed a couple of the last majors because of not being vaccinated, because of the pandemic canceling, you know, Wimbledon in in 2020. Um, so there have been though, you know, he's, he's missed a few of them. Not that the others haven't missed majors as well due to injury. Uh, but as he's really, you know, accelerated his major, uh, gatherings, um, he's missed out on a couple that he probably would have won along the way. I mean, he could easily, easily be at, you know, somewhere close to 25, 26 now, if not for missing a couple of these because of, his vaccination status, but yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's a hard and and then I, I I think about like the great like people were convinced when Sampras retired that nobody was going to catch Sampras and his fourteen and that Pete was the greatest of all time. Although really, a lot of the old timers will say Rod Laver's the greatest player to ever play. I don't you know this is another one of those conversations you know about you know sort of evolution and what it's done to. You know the the athleticism and the physical abilities that they have today. Not to mention the technology that's totally different from what it was in Laver's day. But uh, I don't know Federer for me at his best. I don't know if we've ever seen anybody that great. And by the way, that graceful at the same time. Maybe it was as much as uh, uh, as much about the way he did it um, as it was that he did it. That, that's what I think with Federer he, aesthetically. He is just so pleasing to watch. Whereas, like Nadal is a is a true grinder, and, and Djokovic is not like you're watching. It's not like watching a ballet when he's out there and he's playing. Yeah. But like like Federer is like you know I don't know uh, if I go Barishnikov, that may be too old of a reference uh, yeah. out here. But you know like like he just had that dancer like uh, vibe at him, and I think that made him just so elegant to watch, especially like playing at Wimbledon, where you know. Uh, it, 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 it worked so well, but like I think your point about, and this is sort of what I was saying. Like I, I if you're telling me somebody is the best because of the number of majors, and we have the same debate you know, on the women's side. If you're telling me they're the best because of the number of majors, okay, if that's your argument, but the, I don't love that. I think like in the NBA de- goat debate, like I don't personally think there's a debate between Jordan and LeBron, but people always just go to well Jordan, and I'm saying because Jordan. It would be the better, but like uh, people say, well, Jordan's got this many titles and LeBron doesn't, therefore he wins. I don't like that argument. I watched him play. Jordan was better. Like I don't need <laughs> the, the number of the majors. You know, uh, it doesn't matter. Now, like in the case of say the NFL, Tom Brady's what seven is just such an overwhelming it's such number an that it kind of yeah, yeah, it, it kind of trumps the debate. But like it wasn't that. You know, Joe Montana ended his career. Being viewed as the guy, he you know like Jordan never lost uh, a Super Bowl, but because Brady's number just dwarfed what Montana did, it's now it's no longer a discussion. I I kind of think that maybe it should be, and I would even put John Elway in there and whatever. But you know the the, the, the rings culture that has dominated these conversations over the last you know I don't know decade or two, you know I. I think it's an important data point, obviously, but it shouldn't be the whole conversation because of something like this. If you're going to say that, then is Djokovic and Nadal better than Federer, who you and a lot of other people are saying is the best ever? I, how do you, you know, what, what, if I, we're just going by rings. Then yeah. that's, but the thing is, is that, you know, even though I just said that I think Federer at his best is the best I've ever seen. Um, you know, at the apex of his career. In an individual sport, it really does come down 
to you know the numbers. Now you can say, I mean, Djokovic is the greatest winner in the history of the sport. You know, Tom Brady is the greatest winner in the history of the the NFL. But you're talking about a team sport versus individual sport. The individual sure. sport this ha- this has to matter as much, if not more, than anything else um, because you're not dependent on anybody else uh, to to win a ring, to win a, a title. But with that said. I watched all these guys, and to me, Federer is the best I've ever seen when he was at his best. I didn't feel like there was ever a chance that Federer was going to lose when he would w- was at his best. Um, and and yeah, I think the the gracefulness of uh, of style may have some influence on that. But he, uh, he was spectacular. I mean, six Australians. Eight Wimbledons, five U.S. Opens, just one French. I'm glad he got that French. Um, and Nadal, you know, heavily weighted on clay and on what he was able to do in Paris. And Djokovic, by the way, has 10 Australians out of his 23. You know, and I'd like to look at the fields in the Australians that he played in, you know, over that that period of time. But he's got 23, and so he is, you know, one thing that's not debatable is if you judge, you know, that that particular individual sport by its majors, Djokovic is the greatest winner of all time. And by the way, he's not done yet. And, and I would also say, you know, we talk about obviously you know, part of this debate when you're judging different eras is, okay, well, how do you factor in the training that, that guys had or the, the advancement in, in uh, medicine and, 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 and medical technology, whatever? I don't know if there's any sport where that is more notable than tennis. Sure. You know, when Bjorn Borg retired at, like, what, 26, I mean, or whatever, I mean, that was, like, burnout. That wasn't an injury. But, like, it, it was, all you know, that was early. But, like, there weren't many tennis players who, who thrive beyond, like, 30. Like, when Jimmy Connors was out there as an older guy back in the 80s, like, it was like he might as well have been 100 compared to, like, the, some of the guys he was going up against. You know, this is a sport where, like, 15-year-olds, you know, especially on the women's side, have great success. So the fact that these guys have been playing deep into their 30s and then you wouldn't know that they're, that they're, that they're, that they are there, that Djokovic is, like, the fittest guy out there. I bet, you know, Tom Brady was in Djokovic's box the other day for the final, and I was thinking that Djokovic probably looks at Brady's diet as, like, oh, God, two minutes, too, 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 uh, too loose there, Tom. You're eating too much... Uh, junk food you know Tom Brady's is you know crazy right. as anybody but like the advancement that these guys have to take their fitness up to these levels is is crazy and in that sport in particular where so much of it is about the cardio you know the ability to stay out on the court for four or five hours um, at, for a match is remarkable and it's way different than it was um It's it's actually interesting, Um, and I I don't have you know the data in front of me for this, but I think we went from an era in which players actually played well until they were older. I think you know Rod Laver and John Newcomb and some of these guys did play well uh, well into their thirties, if not late thirties. And you know Connors never won a major at thirty nine years old, but he got to the U.S. Open semifinals at thirty nine years old, which was that famous you know. Open back in uh, 1991, 90 or 91, whatever year that was. Um, McEnroe, by the way, followed it up a year later, I think it was, with a with a run at 35 years old to the semis. And then we went through this era where, you know, like you were done at 25. Like, you know, I know that, I mean, Agassi started to get injured, but, you know, it was like, no, this is a young person sport. And now Djokovic is 36 years old and, 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 and he, he's still got more majors to come. So there's, it's been, um, I don't know what the right answer is. I, I think for a while people really thought maybe it was because of Borg's retirement, uh, you know, and it was burnout retirement at 26 after losing to McEnroe in the 81 U.S. Open. But I, I, I think that uh, there was a period of time where everybody thought, my God, you know, Andrea Yeager and Tracy Austin and Andre Agassi and all of these young phenoms, Aaron Crickstein, and it's like the, you're you're done at 25. You, and you, by the way, you got you got to be a pro by 15 or 16. And now, right, we said it for Capriati. He's on yeah. the cover of Sports Illustrated at 13. Right. Um, but I, I just looked over the Rod Laver won the Grand Slam 
his, these were his last majors. He was 31. 31. So he was into his 30s, though. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, a, a little bit. Yeah, like these guys are just playing, you know, like I said, way, way beyond. Also, it is it is insane that, like, um, I I always, like, uh, love the, the idea of, like, what's the most random sports stat that you just find interesting? And I always go with, that Stan Rowinka, who most people are listening yeah. to this probably don't even know who that is. He's Swiss. He won three majors <laughs> yeah. during this Federer, Nadal, yeah. Djokovic era, which is insane because those guys like have a combined like 60-something. 65 like, and, out of the last 79. 65 out of the last 79 majors have won by have been won by Novak, Fed, and Nadal. And by the way, their um their combined you know major uh, count of twenty three twenty two and twenty so what is that sixty five majors I just said sixty five out of the last seventy nine, um, the the uh, no what, what that that wasn't the stat I was coming up with Djokovic is twenty three, all right McEnroe Connors and Lendl combined have twenty three. We have been living through, by far and away, the greatest championship run, Grand Slam run, um, uh, in the history of men's tennis. And it's, you know, it coincided, by the way, with the sport being the least popular it's ever been in this country. Still wildly popular in Europe and in South America and in Australia um, and other places around the globe. But, you know, in, in terms of the interest level in tennis, I mean, you tell me. I mean, I think Serena's been by far and away the number one draw for Americans, uh, American tennis fans over the last decade and a half. Nobody's cared about this Djokovic-Nadal-Fed run in, in, in this country. And it and and what's interesting about that is I don't think it's just because they're not American players. I mean, we were all in on Borg, but I guess it's because he had a rival in Connors, and then you know eventually McEnroe. But you know there were periods of time where it was Becker and Edberg and Vlander, and you know those kinds of guys were dominating the game, and we watched. Yeah, I mean, I do think that like uh, certainly for me. Like, I'll be honest, like this French Open, um, I watched the Djokovic match most of it, the final. It was the only match I watched I didn't any, watch for even any one minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, and part of it is this inevitability with these guys. I mean, there's something to be said for watching greatness, but we watch greatness <laughs> all the time with these guys. Um, I, I always believe that the universe at any given time spits out only so many players in whatever sport you want to talk about, who would be considered to be the best, uh, a chance to be the best in their sport at any at any moment. And oftentimes, something derails one or two or three of those people um, because of whatever it is, injuries, off-the-field issues, whatever it might be. I think Serena Williams is a good example of this. While she was able to sustain a very, very long career, some of her biggest rivals didn't, for whatever reason, Martina Hingis had off the court, Issues. Uh, Kim Kleister, Justine N, and our dad both uh, retired. Had families yeah, had families and, and, yeah. and retired. So, like, all of a sudden, you went from having these players who were Serena's rivals, if not maybe equals, to the field was open, and now she's dominating. And you know, we see that sometimes with uh, you know the NBA as well. For you know, we're looking at the star players, it can, it can happen um, a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I, I it just these three guys. Their whole careers, other than a, a you know fits and starts with injuries or whatever, or like in the case of Djokovic, like you said, the vaccine and some other matters, like they played, and that's why these guys were so, you know, to have three of them simultaneously playing is yeah, yeah. just insane. Incredible. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been fun. But you're right. I mean, I think I think it's going to be a really interesting era here for tennis. Obviously, Federer is retired. Nadal's on the verge of retiring. I don't know how much longer Djokovic has had. When is somebody else? really going to step up and show that they are worthy. Maybe it's the Alcaraz kid from Spain. Um, but, you know, th- th- that's what's always so fun is when you see the next generation, you know, stand toe-to-toe with this group and then um, beat them. And, and it, it, it ushers in a new era, and I think also allows fans to feel like it's still connected to the prior thing. I think this is part of the problem with the women's sport, with women's tennis. 
nobody nobody challenged Serena. There was no consistency. I, I know right now what it's Switek. I think he's got four yeah. majors. Yeah. Um, but like in general, like there, it's like every major, like you could, it's like four reigns of new names in the semifinal. Uh, there's no consistency. It's it's part of the problem, and uh, I'll be interested to see what happens here with the men. Of course, at this point, just giving up that an American is going to rise up. It is insane that nobody has done anything since Roddick, basically, and even he was, yeah. you know. One major, so um, he was in a bunch of finals, but yeah. Um, By the way, you know, just thinking about uh, Djokovic, it's like Serbia right now on top of the world in terms of Nikola Jokic and and Novak Djokovic. All right, uh, enough tennis. Um, Let's finish up with this. Uh, Do you have any kind of overarching thought about what Ted just did over the last week, hiring three executives to run the Wizards or to run monumental basketball? Did you just ask if I have any thoughts about Ted Leonis running the Wizards? <laughs> I'm more um, I'm more curious as to what you think of these hires. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I, I you know, I, I'd be lying if I said I had a deep uh, dossier on on Michael Winger before it was mentioned that he was interviewed and that got hired. But you know, I asked around, and you know, I think generally speaking, he's got pretty high. Pretty high remarks. Uh, multiple people told me that you know, really smart guys, really going to help them from like a salary cap perspective and being creative and things like that. He is not a basketball town evaluator by nature. He's a lawyer, so he is truly the, the president. And I guess like you know, it would be sort of like Dick Patrick with the Caps, or when Stan Caston, who was here of course with the Nats, was overseeing things. It's like that. So I think that's pretty interesting. The Will Dawkins part as essentially the the top the top eyes for the basketball side. We'll see. I, I don't know. He's you know he's he's obviously come from good stock with Oklahoma City, um, and then Travis Schlenk, who was the GM at the Hawks. The fact that Travis Schlenk is the third guy here essentially is pretty pretty interesting, considering you know it, it has felt like you know say whatever you want about you know Grunfeld or Tommy Shepard, but it didn't feel like the there was a lot, like a deep group of uh, thinkers right. here, I guess. To yeah. say. I mean, I don't want to discount people that I know, but you know. Yeah. Well, it, Ted, it, Ted it, likes it to use the mom. words "mindful" and "thoughtful." He used that a lot last week, um, and that's kind of what he put together. I mean, he swung kind of big for Ted, don't you think? Yeah. Well, what, you know, what was interesting is the Wizards were the only team, uh, you know, at least at the point they were making the hire. Obviously, Golden State, Bob Myers left, or whatever. But like, the, they were the only team that had an actual. GM opening, uh, you know, the top of the front office opening. So, I, you know, who knows? I don't know if there's a year where there's like five. Do they get winger? Do they stay in in a, in a type of hire that they make normally? I don't know. I mean, you know, I, mean, I think that Travis Schlenk came here again as like a third guy. Is is, is it says something about where the marketplace was, perhaps? But yeah, I, I, give, I give Ted credit for that. Where I will 100% ding him is his notion. Like when people were asking, hey, Michael Winger, do you have the ability to rebuild? And he said, I do. Okay, great. We'll see what happens. But then when Ted is asked about this, I don't know if, where it was the press conference or somewhere I heard him on the radio, but he's like, well, just look at my track record. You know, look what we did with the Caps. So, you know, way back when we, you know, traded a bunch of vets. And look what we did with the Wizards. You know, we traded away three All Stars, meaning Gilbert Arenas, Antoine Jameson, and Karan Butler. <laughs> not, not only. Is some of that disingenuous? I mean, Gilbert Arenas was broken at that point, and you know, coming up the guns in the locker room, and you know, they, they definitely had to rebuild. It wasn't like a big, big shock at that point to think that. Um, but he is completely ignoring the fact that he said publicly within the last five years, "We will never ever tank," and that has been the basis for the frustration for so many of us. Over the last few years, not to say you had to definitively blow up the Wizards five, six years ago, but like it's been pretty apparent the last couple of years that the move was as good as Bradley Beal is to trade him, knowing he was going to get this huge contract looming. Trade him, start over. You got you traded Westbrook without having to give up picks. They were in such a good position a couple of years ago to really get a quick turnaround here from like a rebuild standpoint, get excitement, and he didn't. Because he said we will never ever tank, so to act like he's always been open for this, right. give me a break. Yeah. And and if he's not going to own that, then I, I can't give him total credit 
for this. But again, I, I, I think it's an interesting move. But uh, come on, you gotta you gotta own that guy. Uh, anybody that you uh, specifically want them to draft, hope falls that you hope falls to eight next week. Uh, unless it's Victor Wembanyama or Scoot Henderson, I have zero idea. I, I don't even know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I haven't like remotely. I, I college basketball to me is not what it was. So I, you know, you would know much better feel than me for these guys. So the, the answer would be no. I, I, I'm I'm just much more interested to see what they do with Beal. Yeah, if they do anything, and what they do with Kyle Kuzma and Porzingis, because keeping all that I, I will help you in the short term, but it's getting you nowhere long term. But if you let them go for kind of nothing, then you know you're you're, you're not helping your cause either. So I'm more interested in that. But how about you? Is there somebody in the draft for you? Uh, at you eight, want? at eight, I don't I don't know honestly. I mean, there are some players that you know that I haven't seen. I didn't watch you know these Thompson brothers. They played in the G League. I. I you know, I've seen a lot of highlights on Scoot Henderson, but they're not going to have a chance to draft him. Um, you know, D- Grady Dick's just another really good shooter. Uh, I kind of like Anthony Black, but I don't think he's going to be there at eight. And the guy that I think is going to be an outstanding NBA player, but they just don't need him from the from a positional standpoint, is Hood Shafino from Indiana. But I think the most important thing, without question, um, to, in terms of the you know the moves that they make once they sort of take this thing over and the draft is over is you know do they try to move Beal because they can't win and contend for an NBA championship keeping Bradley Beal in that contract uh, and Bradley Beal you know thinking continuing to think that Bradley Beal is an elite player because um, he's not and Ted's thought that he was, you know, Ted was, was sure that not only was he a great ambassador for, for the franchise, but that he, he was somebody you could build and contend with, um, but you can't, not if he's your best player. So I think that's the most interesting thing is to watch what they do with Bradley Beal. Porzingis and Kuzma have, you know, player opt-outs and they'll probably both opt out. And to me, Porzingis is worth re-signing because he's got the massive ceiling. He's the guy that could be elite, like true superstar. Hasn't proven it because of injuries, but there were times last year in games last year I was like, wow. I mean, he really is a difference maker. Um, all right. Uh, anything else on that? Well, I'll just say, and I'm with you, like if they hadn't botched the draft with just so many mediocre picks, the Beal, Porzingis, Kuzma trio – could have been a lot more interesting, but that's not how it worked out. I would just say that I know, like in these summer months, you've got to dig deep for topics. If you do a topic of what's been the worst decision that any of these teams have made over the last 20 years, I defy you to tell me one that's worse than giving Bradley Beal the no trade clause, considering they didn't have to on any level. <laughs> like, it is such an unforced, like, you could say signing Albert Hainsworth was bad. Albert Hainsworth was like the defensive player of the year. Yeah. Right, I understood why I, st- they did. I still don't. I still don't think that that was a bad signing. I still thought yeah, right. in the That's moment okay. like, that you know what, this is what they need. Um, yeah, uh, if, giving Beal the no trade clause was obviously not necessary, but I also think that they should have dealt Beal um, prior to that. But anyway, all right. Oh I, yeah, for uh, sure. But yeah, yeah. you got to go. I do have to go uh, because I've got to do a radio show. But I appreciate you doing this. I will talk to you later. Ben Standing, everybody. Uh, that may have been a bit too much tennis for some of you. So we'll go to golf next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shay Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Don 
Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This segment of the show brought to you by Window Nation. The heat and the humidity are coming. They're going to drive your energy bills much higher, forcing that air conditioning into overdrive this summer. It's time to beat the heat with Window Nation's summer sale. Right now, you can save thousands with no money down, no payments, and no interest for two full years. Plus, Window Nation will give you two free windows with every two you buy, no limit. Protect and increase the value of your home today. Call Window Nation, 866-90-NATION. Go online at windownation.com. Mention my name, Kevin Sheehan. You'll get a free estimate, so there's nothing to lose. I've been endorsing Window Nation for now 14 years. I've been a customer of Window Nations, and I promise you, you won't go wrong if you choose them. Call them at 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com. No money down, no payments, and no interest until the year 2025. Plus, buy two, get two free with no limit. You'll save thousands on your new windows all the while upgrading the look and feel of your home. So, tomorrow at Los Angeles Country Club, the U.S. Open gets underway. Uh, I had a guest on the radio show this morning, Brody Miller from The Athletic. He was excellent in describing the mysterious Los Angeles Country Club. It sits right there in Beverly Hills, Wilshire Boulevard, and it has been one of the more exclusive places in the country for a long period of time. The USGA, which runs the U.S. Open, has come to the Los Angeles Country Club membership many times over the years, wanting to play its United States Open at LACC, and they've been denied over and over again. LACC's never hosted a major championship. Uh, But a few years ago, maybe eight, nine years ago, whenever that was, they finally said yes. Um, Brody Miller did a great job of describing not only kind of the history and the mystery of LACC, uh, but he also described the kind of course it is, which is exactly what Denny McCarthy uh, did with me on radio uh, last week when I had him on after he nearly won the Memorial Jacks tournament in Dublin, Ohio, right outside of Columbus. So I wanted you to hear Denny McCarthy, who will be playing in tomorrow's U.S. Open, this weekend's U.S. Open, and Denny nearly winning at the Memorial. A lot of people like Denny's chances. I mean, he is a great putter, uh, and he's actually got a game that's more suited for very difficult courses than the courses where you go 25, you know, 20 under par and win. So I wanted you to hear Denny McCarthy describe um, sort of L.A. Country Club and this weekend's U.S. Open. Uh, Here was our conversation from last week. I think somebody told me, um, a mutual uh, friend, family member mentioned to me that you've played it a number of times. Is that true? 
I have, yeah. I probably played it. I played it in February to get a look at it when I was on the West Coast, and I probably played it, you know, two or three times before that. So I've, I've seen it at least three or four times. Um, wanted to see it in February just to get a look at it and, you know, familiarize myself. And um, it's going to be a great test. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So is it a course, like I think, and you said this in your press conference, that tough courses are good for you. I mean, you're a great putter, great short game, the whole thing. Does this set up as a very difficult, you know, U.S. Open course? Yeah, it was hard to tell in, in February. Right. It, was just, it was really soft, and no matter how long it is, you know, if it's soft for pros, even if we're hitting four irons, um, you know, with the softness, you're able to stop it quickly. And it, it, it just, it's not as difficult when it's soft. So when I played it, it was kind of soft, but it was very long also. Um, so if, if, if they get it firm, which I imagine they're going to, doesn't get, you know, California doesn't get that much rain. Um, it, it's going to be a hard test just because there's just a lot of rolling hills. Um, there's, it's going to be Bermuda rough. Fairways are firm and undulating, so if you get a ball rolling on the edge of the fairway and trickles just into the rough, you know it, it's going to be difficult to play out of the rough. You're coming into firm greens, deep bunkers. Um, it's it's going to be a test. You're going to have to you're going to have to put the ball in the fairway. You're going to have to get quality shots around the greens that might not even get rewarded and. You know, might be you know bound off the greens, and then you're going to have to you know obviously at the U.S. Open you're going to have to you're going to have to have some some grindy up and downs and make some par saves, and you know that's that's what I like to do. <laughs> um, that's it's more suited for me than it is you know trying going out and trying to shoot 25 under right. at an event. Um, I, I like the events where you know shooting around par is is a really good score and. Um, you know, I like I like those championship type of venues and courses, and you know, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Good luck uh, at the Open next weekend, and I appreciate you doing this as always. Of course, thanks for having me on, Kevin. Denny McCarthy from last week talking about uh, the U.S. Open and LACC, uh, which starts tomorrow, and he will be in it. All right, we are done for the day. Back tomorrow with Tommy. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.